You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, I pray uh, that you would be with us uh, in the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit, and that in the end, not my words, but Jesus, your living word, would go forth, and that he indeed would remain um, in our hearts and in our lives. All this I ask, all this I offer in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. As we begin our reflection this morning, um, really on, on both lessons, but we have this uh, a little succinct passage from the 13th chapter of John's Gospel. And you may uh, know that this is referred to as the Upper Room Discourse um, beginning in John chapter 13. It's a, it's a time of tremendous importance when Jesus is speaking um, to his closest friends and followers. The, the time of his betrayal um, is at hand, uh, and the time uh, for him um, to be with them prior to his crucifixion, the, the, the clock um, is ticking, uh, and the words that he chooses to share with them are, are words of utmost importance, uh, utmost love and grace and concern for them. Uh, as, uh, as Shakespeare said, as we all know, where, where words are scarce, they are seldom spent in vain. Um, and so the words of Jesus at this time are, um, are personal uh, and they are focused, spoken um, to his followers. And uh, I share a couple of, uh, share a little bit of a story. Um, uh, I, I love to read, and there's a book, uh, Paper Towns. I don't know if any of y'all have uh, read Paper Towns. John Green, um, uh, very um, popular author, has written, uh, I see at least, yes, thank you, at least a few head nods. Um, uh, and, and the rest of you uh, can glaze over momentarily, but it is pertinent, uh, I, I promise you. Uh, but anyway, John Green uh, writes this story about paper towns, and it's uh, it, interesting, it's like a lot of, uh, a lot of stories uh, that we're familiar with. You know, two friends that live next door to one another since childhood, and as they grow up, one becomes popular, one um, does not, and uh, it's, uh, that's sort of where it begins, kind of like a lot of the wholly edifying movies um, I grew up on in the 80s, Can't Buy Me Love, Sixteen Candles, Pretty in Pink, um, just to name... <laughs> Just to name a just to name a few, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, um, you know, sort of those. You you know the story again. Friends from childhood, one becomes popular in high school, um, one doesn't. And the two chief characters are um, Q, Quentin Jacobson, and Margot Roth Spiegelman. Uh, those uh, those are the two. Q is uh, is in the band, is not popular. Margot's um, social status uh, takes off. But at one point. Um, they really hadn't, they don't interact very much anymore uh, until one moment uh, at night she comes to his window and knocks on his window and, and, and calls him out uh, because she is, um, she needs his help uh, in a path of revenge. Um, there are people who have wronged her and apparently um, Margot does not take that lying down. And so they begin this, uh, they begin this um, effort to get even uh, and justice and retribution all the people who have hurt her and who have um, betrayed her. And at one point, they are in the um, SunTrust building in downtown Orlando, uh, and they go up and they're looking out um, over the city of Orlando, uh, and uh, this is their conversation. From above, Orlando was pretty well lit. Beneath us, I could see the flashing don't walk signs at intersections and the street lights running up and down the city in a perfect grid until downtown ended and the winding streets and cul-de-sacs of Orlando's infinite suburbs started. 
It's beautiful, I said. Margot scoffed. Really? You seriously think so? And it goes on, and, and, and Quentin says to, to him, it seems like something real. And obviously, she doesn't agree. Uh, at her scoffing, he immediately begins to uh, backtrack a little bit. He says, I, I mean, well, maybe not, I said, although it was. Here at night, it looked like a real place. But for the first time, a place I could see. And he responded to her, it's more impressive from a distance. You can't see the wear on things, the rust or the weeds or the paint cracking. You see the place as someone once imagined it. And in response to this, um, she calls it fake. Uh, she calls it a, a paper a paper town. As a, an interesting aside, the, uh, the title comes from a paper town. Back in the days of map makers, what map makers would do was they would make up a fake town. Um, and they'd make up a fake town and they would put it on the map. And so if someone copied their map, they would know it. Um, because the fake, the fake town would show up on, on their map as well. And so anyway, Q thinks it's great. She doesn't. She calls it fake. And she says this, you see how fake it all is. It's not even hard enough to be made out of plastic. It's a paper town. I mean, look at it, Q. Look at all those cul-de-sacs, those streets that turn in on themselves. All the houses that were built um, to fall apart. All those paper people living in their paper houses. Everyone demented with the mania of owning things, all the things paper thin and paper frail, and all the people too. I've lived here for 18 years. I have never once in my life come across anyone who cares about anything that matters. So she sees it as all um, fake, uh, and she uh, has that longing, uh, as is true of the human condition, for something substantive, right? Uh, for something uh, for something real. It's a, it's a familiar um, tale, not only in that particular moment in life, but, but throughout life. We look for something substantive. We look for something real, something that we can depend upon in it. And it goes on, and don't worry, I'm not going to read you the entire book, um, but there's another part, um, and she disappears. Um, so they go on this revenge tour, and the next thing you know, she's gone. Uh, she's just left town, and, and she leaves clues uh, for him to find her, and, and among them of Walt Whitman's uh, Leaves of Grass, uh, and he begins to read through that, and, and uh, we hear from him, the narrator, uh, he says this, I went to bed with the Whitman flipping to the part I'd liked before, where he spends all the time hearing the opera and the people. After all that hearing, he writes, I am exposed, cut by bitter and poisoned hail. That was perfect, I thought. You could listen, I thought, you listen to people, so that you can imagine them and you hear all the terrible and wonderful things people do to themselves and one another. But in the end, the listening exposes you even more than it exposes the people you're trying to listen to. Walking through pseudo-visions and trying to listen to her does not crack the Margot Roth Spiegelman case so much as it starts um, to crack me. He talks about how when we begin to listen, when we begin to care, when we begin to uh, in, invest in one another, um, it, it opens us up. Uh, it begins to expose us. It begins to impact. And I'll, um, uh, uh, we'll leave the young adult section of fiction now uh, and move back to John 13. But I, I mention all that because it, it is resonant uh, with the human condition, our, our, our longing. And, and in this, she, uh, she leaves and he goes um, to pursue her. And you may think this sounds a little cheesy, and maybe it does, but I would say this is true. We all long to be loved and pursued, do we not? 
we, we don't admit it, <laughs> but, but we do. We long for someone um, to love us. We long for someone to value us. We long for someone um, to pursue us. We long for something which is valuable, something substantive, something um, which is lasting. Even though um, she is expressing this by way of angst, it's something um, that we can relate to. And I share that with you because I mentioned John 13, Jesus gives this command to his followers to love one another as he has loved us. And if you remember, John 13 begins with Jesus washing um, the disciples' feet. Jesus washes his disciples' feet and he is aware um, that Judas will betray him. This isn't news to him. He is aware that his betrayer is in the midst of that company. And not just Judas, of course, it's, it's nice to focus on Judas, but all the others will fail him also. Judas will do so more significantly and more spectacularly. But right after the portion which is read, Jesus, uh, Peter says, I'll go with you and I'll die with you. And Peter says, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. We see it's not just um, Judas. Uh, we see that it is all of them who are fail and fall away. And yet, as Jesus is washing their feet, John interestingly says that Jesus, having loved his own while he was in the world, he loved them to the end. Or it's sometimes translated, he loved them to the full. And as you might imagine, what I'm beginning to hopefully hold out um, to you and to me uh, is, is what I know um, absolutely and personally and profoundly to be true, um, that this um, longing that we have in our lives for something real, for something substantive, is found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that's not a new thing for a preacher to say. Uh, and we come up with different ways to try to say it, uh, perhaps engagingly again and again, um, but to the void and the vacuum of the human condition, uh, the life uh, and the love and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ speak. He is the one who comes um, to pursue us. He is the one um, who is real. Uh, and in his um, sacrifice and is willing to be betrayed, um, God is glorified. Uh, and it gives us a window into um, what love um, looks like. I, I mentioned love. We all want to be recipients of love, but we also want to be people who extend love to one another as well. And, of course, love is portrayed uh, in our uh, lives and in our culture in, in, in myriad ways and, and often ways that, that seem to you and to me unsatisfying. Uh, but what I would hold out is that we see the, a great deal of what love looks like, uh, and this is challenging, but it's true, uh, is love uh, often looks like sacrifice. We see the way that Jesus um, demonstrates his love um, to his followers. Having loved his own while he was in the world, he loved them um, to the end. It is his, in his willing um, sacrifice for you and for me. And, and the challenge, of course, in, in life, and this is something that the human condition is a story uh, of not just other people, uh, but you and me as well. Uh, as is said, the human heart is an idol factory. We, we're looking for that meaning. We're looking for that substance. We're looking for that security. We're looking for that love and, and all sorts of avenues and means that that don't fulfill, um, often of our um, creation and our pursuit or um, looking to others um, for the ultimate. And we are called indeed to be people who demonstrate love to one another. And the ways that we do that can be profoundly, um, profoundly um, impacting. Uh, I, I share um, a story with you, uh, a friend of mine, and I'll go ahead and preface this by way of saying, 
this is one of those stories um, where it sort of makes me look good, but you know better. Um, and I'll go ahead and flesh that out before it's all said and done. But um, I got an email from one of my college uh, classmates, and it was on my birthday. We have a birthday in the same month. His is a leap year uh, birthday, so he has one every four years. Uh, but we're both February birthdays, and uh, we, you know, being guys, we're great about keeping up uh, maybe once every year or two. Um, we contact one another in the month of, in the month of February. Uh, and, he, and he wrote, uh, was remembering and sharing a story with me. And, and again, honestly, this is the part, I know it makes me sound good, but you'll, I'll explain in a minute how lame I am, um, and so you'll be relieved. Um, but he, he shared a story about, uh, apparently when we were in school together, um, he... <laughs> He had pledged this fraternity, which was strictly illegal at the Citadel, um, but he did so um, anyway. Omega Psi Phi was the um, fraternity, the Q-Dogs, uh, in case you're unfamiliar with the brand um, on their arm, if you've ever seen um, the, the Omega, the Q, uh, on, on their arm. So my buddy Herbie, uh, you know, his life goal, he was going to be a Q-Dog. Uh, and this was, this was a big deal, but he didn't have the money um, to pledge the fraternity. He had worked that summer to save the money, uh, but when he was getting ready to go back to school, um, his sister didn't have enough money to pay for her classes, so he gave her the money that he had worked for um, all summer. Uh, and apparently he said he had come to me and asked me if he could borrow the money. Uh, and he said, I said yes, and, and wrote him a check uh, and didn't ask what it was for. Um, and, I, and I gave him the money, and I said, that's the part where it says, well, here's the part which you know is lame. You know who gave Herbie the money? My parents. Um, so let's let's just sort of back up a little bit. I didn't give the money. Uh, my parents gave the money. I was not the generous one. It was my parents um, that were the generous ones. Because you know how much money I had in college. I had only the amount of money that they um, that they that they gave to me. And and he shared that. I mean, obviously, I was. I thought, come. I'm such an awesome guy. Um, I'd, for, I'd, for, I'd forgotten that. It was one of those, but it was interesting, right? It was one of those things um, that, that had made an impact. And again, I'm embarrassed to say that I forgot, but it made an impact, um, it made an impact in his life. He, he said he paid me back. I don't know. Um, so I probably should go back and check um, and see. Uh, but I, it was one of those, I mean, it was obviously it was one of those things that made an impact in his life and it made an impact uh, in mine as well. But I, I shared, the reason I do share that story with you is, is this, is, is there, was a, there was a price to that. Uh, but again, I, I wasn't the one ultimately that paid the price, was I? Um, it, it was my parents. And you see where I'm going with this. God loves us at a cost to himself. God extends love and grace to you and to me, saving love and grace um, to you and to me. And it it saves us not just in heaven. It saves us not just um, in the life to come, but it saves us now. Because without that saving love being foundation in our lives, we seek to fill that void with all sorts of other things. And again, we all fall prey to it. All of us Christians do it all the time, again and again and again. We try to fill it with any number of things which disappoint us again and again and again. But we hear in John 13 the nature and the character of God in Jesus Christ who comes and says, I'm, I'm willing to love you at a cost to myself. I'm willing to give to you um, at a cost to myself. I'm willing to restore you um, at a cost to myself. And it's that love which gives our lives substance. 
It's that love which gives our lives meaning. It's that love which, which cannot be um, taken away from us uh, because Jesus, in fact, gives that to us not grudgingly, not reluctantly, um, but he does so willingly. And as I say, it, it saves us not just in the life to come, but it saves us now as we try to place all those um, different things in the place, as we seek to love one another, as we seek to forgive um, one another, as we seek to have a hope which transcends our circumstance. Uh, it's found in that person and that work of Jesus, in whose name I now pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks and praise that you work for our good. And in the gift of Jesus, your Son, uh, you have come into the world to seek us, to lovingly and graciously pursue us, based not on our merits, but on your character. Lord, catch and capture us this day. Drive out all the idols of our hearts and our lives and fill them with yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.